Welcome everyone, this is Russ Galzo of Chronicles the End Time. So glad to have you with us today. Today we have a special guest. Once in a while, you know, I like to bring in some folks that God has really touched and miracles that have happened in their lives. And today we have Reverend Stephen Kraft, and Reverend Stevie has got an amazing testimony. And it's just so good to see and to hear all that God is doing and how far God will go to get a hold of each one of us. So, Reverend Stevie, it's so good to have you with us today. Thanks for coming by and sharing with us. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be here with you, Brother Russ. Thank you, Brother. You know, testimonies are such a powerful tool because people can look at the Bible and say, well, I don't believe that, or, you know, I don't believe in a personal God or whatever the case may be. But when God comes into somebody's life and comes into your life, my life, and it changes, drastically changes your life, that's a powerful thing. Were you exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ when you were young? Yes. Matter of fact, Russell, I was raised in the uh, Black Baptist Church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I am a literal church kid, but the problem was I was religious and lost. In other words, for your listening audience, what I mean by that, I grew up in the church. I knew about Jesus. I knew about the gospel. I believed in Jesus. I believed in the gospel. But if I had died, I would have been lost because I had never really committed my life to Jesus Christ. I had what the Bible says, a form of godliness because I grew up in the church. Mm. Well, I think that's probably the majority of people that go to church, they don't understand that they can have that. It's not rules and regulations, right? It's not like, oh, do this, do this, and you're good to go. But it's it's that moment you know, where you meet Christ, that, that spiritual revelation that happens in your life that changes everything. So you you had some kind of religion, we might say, we'll call it that for now. Um, going on. But then as you began to grow up and into life a little bit, um, things started happening. Oh, yes. A whole lot of things began to happen. I never really, quote unquote, lost my head belief in Christ. I never believed in Allah. I never believed in Buddha or Harry Christian or any of those things. But my problem, like you just expressed, as I got older, as I moved into my teen years, I was born October 10th, 1943. So back in those days, as you are well aware of, black people were under legal segregation, Jim Crow. So coming up, I had a lot of bitterness a lot of anger, a lot of hatred in my heart as a young person. And I could not understand why uh, we were being hated simply for the because of the color of our skin. I'd be called the N-word, uh, back of the back, sit on the back of the bus, all of these things. And what it did, Russell, was build uh, an anger and a hatred within me for Caucasians because I felt that they were the problem. I learned much later on that wasn't true. But that was the beginning of my downhill slide. Yeah, we know the enemy uses hate uh, a lot, a lot of hate and prejudice of every kind. And 
being a 60s kid and having uh, lived through that, you know, the Kennedy assassination and the Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and all the violence that was going on. But it was bubbling up. And we know that, you know, the enemy uses all that. But there was a lot of wrongs done that shouldn't have been done. And uh, as Christians, we can see that God is diverse. God creates all of us. He creates this great uh, world with all its diversification. And uh, But the enemy gets in there and plants those seeds of hate. And we still see it going on today. So I can imagine that that hate just built up in you, and the enemy used it as a trigger. Oh, a serious, a serious attitude, a serious anger. Uh, by the time I finished high school, New Brunswick High, 1961, I basically was very double-minded because if you remember, you and I both came out of that same era as you remember, we still had prayer in the schools. They didn't take prayer out of schools until the year after I graduated. We still had Bible reading in the schools. You know, I, I remember reading the 23rd Psalm every day uh, in class. I remember saying the Lord's Prayer. And we never, it never entered our mind about school shootings and all these type of things. So, Basically, we had a God consciousness, and I guess that, in a way, as as strange as it may sound, that, in a way, made me even angrier, because with that God consciousness and knowing that we, as black people, were were loved by God, and yet the world was treating us like second- and third-class citizens, it made me even angrier. Yeah, the enemy really gets in and uses these situations, and they're real situations and uh, awful situations, but uh, he augments them, and and he probably sent you on a direction that maybe you would have never gone in before. You know, this hate and and this animosity uh, set you on a path. And I know that you had a great affinity for New York City, and I know that as a kid, even you loved uh, New York. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how that all evolved and and how that played uh, a part in your life. I've always been intrigued with New York City. To this day, it's probably worth some money. <laughs> my mother and my father, they when I because I was the first born child, they brought me a New York suit, which was a little small suit with little short pants and little suspenders. And every time my mother or father would take me to New York, they'd say, okay, Stevie, we're going to put on your New York suit. You're going to New York. And I'd get all excited. And in the summer, our church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, would always have what we called back then excursions. Uh And the excursions would always be to South Brooklyn. The Coney Island. Oh, we're going to Coney Island. <laughs> Stateful cool. chase. So I've been going to New York City all of my life. I've always been fascinated with New York City. So that wasn't just something I just started going to New York. But as I got older, began to see the seamy side of life mm. uh, and beginning to see the fast life of New York City. And this was probably uh, in my t- early 20s. Because at that time, the draft, the military draft was still in effect. And I was classified 1A, which means that I had I was going to be drafted. 
So after I came out of high school in 1961, sure enough, I was drafted into the Army, had to go down to Fort Dix in 1964 for a boot camp and then for AIT, Advanced Individual Training. So you got drafted during the Vietnam War period, which I can relate to. I got drafted in 1968 during the Tet Offensive, didn't have to go, thank God. But uh, did you get shipped out? No, I didn't have to get shipped out. God, looking back now, Russell, I can see God's hand on me because so many of these ones that went in at, with me, that were inducted with me, never came back home or came back home in a box. Right. What happened with me, and you probably even remember this, back when I was in high school, we had we didn't have computers, we had typewriters. <laughs> uh -huh. And the type, then they had a course, typing. We would learn how to type, touch type. And I remember the typing teacher, they'd have the chart or the, the, with, the, with the, all of the keys. And on the typewriters in the class, there wouldn't be any letters on the keys. So you learned how to touch type. Oh, yeah. I still know that. I know how to touch type to, that, to this very day. I don't hunt and peck. I know that once you learn it, you never forget it. That's so right. because I knew how to type, once I got inducted into the Army and then went into advanced individual training, AIT, they discovered that, hey, we're not going to send this guy across the pond. We're not going to send him to Vietnam. Vietnam War was already going on. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep him stateside because we're going to need him in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, to be the, the company clerk to the E-9 First Sergeant. So I'm, I see now looking back, in hindsight, Russell, that was God's hand on me because I could have got over there with all the hatred and evil in my heart and died. Yeah, there's no question. God had his hand on you. He spared your life. I mean, I can remember watching TV and seeing the news and the scroll would just go up the TV. So many uh, had died. It was just it was awful. It was an awful time um, in, a, in a terrible war. Yes. Uh, so... Now, you go through this scenario, you know, you're in the Army and God spares you from going to Nam and, and, and possibly dying over there uh, without knowing Christ. Uh, and now another phase of your life begins. Uh, when was the first time that you got introduced to narcotics? Do you, do you remember? You know, that's kind of sketchy. It's hard. For, I really... In all honesty, I really couldn't tell you because it was a subtle progression, a s slow, subtle progression. The seeds for addiction were always there. Mm -hmm. And the anger and the bitterness and the hatred for Caucasians because of the racism that was promoted by the government at that time was always there. So it was just a dynamite, you know, waiting to be lit and explored. But I do remember... Uh, after I came out of the service in 66, I went back, instead of going back to New Brunswick, I went to New York City and started hanging out with my cousin, uh, Jimmy Van Dyne. He, everybody it had a nickname. We called him Jimmy the Weasel. And I started hanging out with him, going over to New York City every week. And he never worked a legitimate job in his life. He was older than I was. Uh, he was a hustler, a New York City slicker hustler. He made all his money running drugs, selling dope, uh, 
committing burglaries, and I thought that was cool. You know, I think I can remember Russell maybe two or three times looking back that he actually did a a legitimate job, and that was painting apartments, Mm. you know. But that was like far and in between. But he would always have money, and he was a sharp dresser, you know, but he was an addict. And I wanted to be just like my first cousin, Jimmy the Weasel. So whatever he proposed, I would go along with it. Wow. Well, that's, you know, he was, he was, the old, he was older than you? Yes. Yeah. And then, well, that's the kind of stuff that grabs us, right? You know, the, the enemy kind of throws that out there. You know, the, we, we see, you know, the dress and the money and, and you know, even today, that's like a big draw. You that's know, right. People think, well, you know, whatever I got to do to get it, it's the most important thing is I get it. Right. You know, and, but, you know, we know from living for Christ that God can bless, but he blesses in different ways. Not that way not yet. Th- not that right. way. You know, so when you get involved, then you really start getting involved, right? I mean, you, you, where you stuck your toe in it, now pretty soon you know you're up to your neck in it. Exactly, exactly. Thinking back over those many years ago, every day Jimmy would smoke reefer and drink pints of wine. I can even remember it was either Thunderbird, Ariba, or Gypsy Rose. Mm. And he'd drink tall 40s cans of beer. And obviously, I'd drink and smoke the reefer with him. We'd go sit up in Cretona Park, which was on the other side of 3rd Avenue in the Bronx. Smoke reefer, drink wine. We'd sit on the bench. He'd pass me the wine bottle. I'd drink the wine, pass it back to him. We'd get a fifth or a couple pints. I remember one time, I can still remember this, he bought a pint of wine, cheap wine. He called it Pluck. Was a nickname for everything, and bought a pint of liquor. I don't remember what the, what 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 the whiskey was, but I drank half of that bottle of liquor and half of that bottle of wine, and he did the same thing. And then we smoked it two joints. He kept his cool. I was so drunk I threw up like a dog. Mm. He had to literally take me back to the house and put me in the bed, and then he went back out and did something else. Wow. He was he had a strong tolerance to alcohol and narcotics because, you know, I vomited and I can still remember. I mean, it was like, man, the whole city block was spinning. I was never that sick in my life. So how long now, now that you're in this, how, how long did that phase last when you were in the city and getting high and now you were like, you know, Addicted to this way of life. Well, the alcohol and the marijuana thing would be basically every couple of days or so, but I didn't have a hard narcotics habit at that time. But as we, as we both know, Russell, sin never stays stagnant. It always mm. escalates. That's the one reason why I'm opposed to this legalization of marijuana in our state. That's going to be very problematic. I don't care what they say in Trenton. Yes. I'm sorry to divert, but the listeners need to hear that. But what happened, then Jimmy began to pull out little glassine bags of heroin. Back then in the day, they called them half loads. You would get $5 bags. 
And he began, he would shoot up. I'd see him. I'd say, no, man, I'm putting any needle in my arm. But he said, okay, here, man, here, you go on ahead and snort. You know, you, you know, you cool. And I would snort it, not knowing that it really doesn't make any difference how it gets in you. Mm. If it's in you, you're going to get hooked. So I started snorting the drugs thinking that that wasn't, wouldn't be as bad as putting a needle in my vein. Right. So that went on for a while, and then that escalated to skin popping. And for your listeners who do not know what skin popping is, it's shooting, using the needle, but shooting it in your muscle rather than intravenous in your vein. So it takes about 10 to 15 minutes when you skin pop it in your, in, in your muscle or your, your arm. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes for the drug to take effect. Snorting it. Inhaling it takes even longer, but once you start mainlining it in your vein, boom, it hits you automatically. Mm. So it was a process, but by the time I started mainlining, then I was I was I was hooked. So now you've gone from these recreational drugs or party drugs or however we like to call them today to an actual addiction, and as we all know, this is a really dark place. So you were in a really dark place at this time. Uh, so. How did that evolve? So what was the next major thing that took place in your life? What happened was one night, I can't remember the exact date, but one night we both were coming under withdrawal. We both needed a fix. We got on the subway. First, we took the 3rd Avenue L. 3rd Avenue L has been long gone. Down to 149th, 3rd Avenue. Then we got on the uh, 7th Avenue Express I remember that clearly. The old subway got off on 116th Street, Lenox Avenue, walked across uh, the west side over the 8th Avenue and 116th, went up in a shooting gallery. For your listeners who are not aware of drug lingo, a shooting gallery is the equivalent of a crack house where people go to smoke crack. A shooting gallery is where junkies go to shoot dope. You go there, you give whoever's running the shooting gallery, you give them a couple dollars. If you don't have your own set of works, works are the paraphernalia. We used to call them works or gimmicks. You rent those gimmicks, then you take your dope, you shoot your dope, you pay your money, and you leave. We went in there and cooked up the dope. Jimmy took a shot first and dropped dead right there. Mm. Well, fell out unconscious. I saw it. The other drug addicts in the room tried to revive him. They saw his eyes roll up in his head. I panicked. I was sick as a dog going through withdrawal. But then I saw my cousin's eyes roll up in his head, and he fell off the couch onto the floor. And when the other addicts couldn't bring him out of that, they said, man, he's gone. Jimmy's gone. Take him up on the roof. And I says, no, man, we got to call 911. And there was no such thing as Narcan and all that back in them said, no, man, what are you talking about? 911, we call the cops, man, we'll all get busted. Take him up on the roof. And I'm sick as a dog. I couldn't resist him. Four of them took him up on the roof of the tenement, dropped him off the roof. Oh, my gosh. That, I remember, I can see it like it happened yesterday, Russ. Wow, what a powerful testimony. That's just part one of three parts. Reverend Stevie's testimony, and you be blessed unbelievably to hear how it all turns out so until next time this is russ galzo chronicles the end times keep looking up the king is coming and it's